Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. This is the podcast and the show which we interview authors who write books about Hollywood, television, and entertainment in general. And I have with me tonight a very special guest. She is a Washington Post reporter, and her new book is coming out soon. I believe it hasn't come out yet. But it's called Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television, From Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond. Bethany Butler, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. Thanks so much for having me. Now, when is the book coming out? Well, let's make let viewers. Yeah, it's actually tomorrow, December 5th. December 5th. Oh, timing it just right. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, um, this book, and I've and I've read it, read through it, and it is fascinating. Um, now everybody's gonna say 50 years of black TV. You start with Julia in 1968, starring Diane Carroll. And you go through the shows that are on TV now and in even beyond what could hold, what could be in store for African-Americans on television in the future. And I'll let you just, I'll let you describe it because people are going to say, well, there were African-Americans on television before Julia in 1968. But you, you make it very clear in the book why you're starting there. Right. That's exactly right. So obviously there were um, shows like Beulah and Amos and Andy that featured um, either prominent black leads or majority black cast. Um, But these were shows that didn't have black people behind the scenes. They weren't in the writer's room. They weren't creating these shows. Um, And so the experiences, their experiences that were being shown on screen were not authentic. and I think that for this book, you know, we really I wanted to focus on shows that had centered black people and their stories. And obviously, that's still a challenge, even in 1968. Right. Because um, there weren't very many writers on Julia um, at any point during that show that were black. Um, but there were discussions that were had because Diane Carroll felt such a responsibility to the black community about what she was putting out there. Um, And I think that Julia is really the first, you know, it's the first black family sitcom um, when we're actually taken inside of a black family's home. In this case, it was a single mother and her son, Um, but it was really groundbreaking. And she was, uh, she played a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. She played a widowed, uh, a a widow, who uh, whose husband Correct. had died, I believe, in the war. Correct, but, in Vietnam, yeah. yep. In the Vietnam War. And that was really one of the first shows to take on the Vietnam War, even. Right. I do think that that was um, unique at the time. And it was, you know, it. she was a, a full sort of character. Um, at the same time, there was a lot of criticism about that show that, again, because there weren't, Black voices behind the scenes beyond Diane Carroll's, uh, there was criticism that it didn't really reflect an authentic Black experience. Um, it was a very tumultuous time um, in in terms of civil rights and, and race relations in the country, and the show didn't really reflect that. That's um, true. But it was important. 
And she got, and like you said, she got a lot of pressure. Uh, she stood up for herself. I mean, she was very, she was a very strong individual off screen as well as on the show. Um, yes. You know, she, and you mentioned like, you know, you mentioned like there were, like you said, uh, there was Bill Cosby on I Spy and there was a, uh, there was Michelle Nichols famously on Star Trek. But like you say in your book, these were African-Americans whose, I want to use the right word, whose presence were tied to the, to the Caucasian actors on the show, the leads on the show. Yes. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. And so I think that, you know, to your point about this book, it really wants to center, uh, the black leads and and the black experiences that are are being shown on TV, absolutely. And and you immediately lead from Julia into one of my favorite shows when I was when I was a kid. Okay, don't <laughs> I'm going back quite a ways here. I remember watching Cliff Wilson when he was on TV. He and for those of you who are too young to remember Flip Wilson, I'm just going to say this. He was the Tyler Perry of his day with his, with his, uh, he had his own, uh, he dressed up like, uh, oh my gosh, I'm having a, I'm having a senior moment here now. He dressed up as a woman, um, quite one of his most famous characters, uh, was, was when he dressed up as, as help me out here, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can still hear him saying the devil made me do it, you know, but I'm, I'm Geraldine, I'm, Geraldine, Geraldine, Jones. Geraldine Jones. My God, how shame on me here. Yeah. But he was, but he was the Tyler Perry of his day. He uh, had a, he had a character there. He had his own show, which was very successful. And, but he also, he also was a groundbreaker. He faced pressure too, didn't he? Yes, he did. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was remarkable that Flip Wilson, as you said, he created, co-created the show and he was really at the helm of it, um, which was so rare at the time. Um, and I think still is rare now. <laughs> um, and he was very intentional. And I think you'll find a lot of people in the book were very intentional about bringing other black people on to the show. So in the case of Flip Wilson, you know, he had Richard Pryor on, he had uh, Red Fox on. Um, he would, you know, bring people both on, on screen and, and behind the camera um, to reflect these authentic experiences. Um, that we saw on his show. And yeah, Geraldine was a fan favorite character. Um, I think she had at least two magazine covers. Um, definitely she was on Jet. Um, and yeah, whenever I talk to people about Flip Wilson, you know, Geraldine gets get brought up. It's, it's kind of timeless. Always, always. I mean, it's like, you know, and now we're talking about the 70s now, but well, for Flip Wilson's show, did he did he come on in the sixties or no? He came on in the seventies, didn't he? Yes, it was early seventies. Early seventies. So it wasn't that far removed from Nat King. For those of you again who don't know who I'm going to talk about, talk about his name was Nat King Cole. He was a singer extraordinaire, and he had his own variety show on. It was a fifteen minute show back in the in the fifties. So we're talking what, 57 up to 1970? 
So it's only th it's 13 years before another African-American gets this chance at, at a variety show, which is amazing to me. I mean, looking back now in 2023 eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were, I do note in the book, there were two black entertainers, Sammy Davis Jr. and Leslie Uggams. And in, in that interim between Nat King Cole and Flip Wilson, they were, they had uh, sort of TV specials. Um, so there was sort of an attempt again to do that. Uh, but Flip Wilson really had the first successful, you know, multiple season show that he was uh, at the helm of. Right. And, and the seventies, now we're talking about the seventies now, now we're ushering in finally, uh, I want to say a slight change, uh, because now you have soul train coming on in 1971 and, Don Cornelius is changing. I mean, this is for those of you who remember American Bandstand. American Bandstand had nothing on Soul Train. Okay, <laughs> if you were cool, you watched Soul Train. I'm sorry, that's just the way it was. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but he uh, but he introduced black entertainers um, more than I would say Ed Sullivan did. Right. Right. There was a sense that Soul Train was kind of like black entertainers coming home and and feeling this familiar atmosphere and being celebrated um, in ways that, you know, the late night shows of the era didn't necessarily do. I think there was one late night show which wasn't on everywheres, but and it wasn't by a black artist, but, but it was a uh, Playboy After Dark or Playboy's Penthouse, one of those one of those two titles. Mm -hmm. uh, Hugh Hefner, for say what you want about him, he uh, he had no qualms about profiling African American uh, artists on his show. Right, and, and in uh, the magazine too. Yeah, and in the magazine too. Yes, exactly. Don't look at the pictures. Okay, read the articles. They're you're going to learn <laughs> something. You know. <laughs> But in the 70s, though, we're we're seeing we're seeing the change come about with Norman Lear, especially. Um, uh, finally, we're seeing black artists getting more of a chance. You've got good times. You've got um, the Jeffersons. You've got and you know. And the amazing thing is that I know the Jeffersons sprang out of All in the Family. I'm I'm trying to remember if Good Times did also. Um. I think so. The Jeffersons was more related to All in the Family, um, but they sort of were all interlinked in a way that, you know, Norman Lear um, had gotten criticism about a lot of criticism about Good Times. Um, you know, the the family at the center of Good Times was was poor, um, like working class, but really poor and. Um, they lived sort of a certain type of experience and maybe it would have been stereotypical at the time um, to show that experience and sort of like reflect that as an authentic black experience. Um, and so given that criticism about, um, you know, stereotypes and all the focus on JJ, which of course um, was Jimmy Walker's famous character. He had the catchphrase mm -hmm. dynamite um, you know, Norman Lear took a different approach with the Jeffersons, uh, to bring in a upwardly mobile black couple. Um, you know, so it, again, it was a, a different experience. And I think 
the character of George Jefferson was very different. The way that he talked to people of all races, <laughs> very oh, confident, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. maybe even more, you know, overconfident <laughs> um, and, and really funny, too. And they had the first interracial marriage on TV, I believe, with yes. in that show. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something which, yes, that, that's exactly true about uh, African-Americans you saw on TV, even in the 70s. The, yes, um, the Jeffersons was upwardly mobile African-Americans, but Sanford and Son, a junk dealer, um, good times. Uh, you know, it was a it was a maid and a a maid and a um, a garbage man. I believe he was was John Amos. You know, um, right? Yeah. And you see that over and over and over again until I would say the eighties. Well. You know, you when you see uh, when you see the '80s come about with the Cosby Show, and I remember reading someplace where the network big big wigs, so to speak, um, I believe they wanted Cosby to be in that same mold. Originally, he was supposed to be a garbage person, and his and his wife supposed to be a maid, and he said, "No, we're going to have the my character be a doctor and my wife be a lawyer." And that's really the first time you've seen that on, on with black TV. Yeah, I hadn't heard that anecdote particularly, but I know that you know obviously um, Cosby was very intentional about um, the success that the Huxtables had had and this family, um, this well well off family um, that they had built and nurtured, and. Uh, you know, there, there was nothing like that on TV prior to the Cosby show. That's very true. Yeah. And now let, switching gears here, uh, ABC. I remember reading something uh, at the time, a TV critic who said, I never knew ABC existed until Roots. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, that that shows us, I mean, that, shows one an ignorance, I guess, you know. Uh, but ABC took a big chance on that on that miniseries, didn't they? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a long saga to that to that um, miniseries, um, which was based, of course, on a book by Alex Haley. And, you know, Brutes is really, I mean, when we're talking all black ensemble casts, um, Brutes lay the groundwork you know there had been nothing like that on tv um you know i think there was a moment for sort of mini series at that time there was a lot of interest in mini series and there were a few planned but roots was the one that you know put black america sort of at the center um and really for the first time as you know watered down as i think a lot of people would say that it was it really did bring the experience of slavery and the, you know, the brutality of slavery into people's living rooms. Exactly. It's like the, what the Holocaust did for uh, that miniseries for uh, World War II. Um, a lot of people didn't realize, maybe they still don't, that what black people went through uh, in the early days of this country, even well, early days, what am I talking about, up until... Up and but still today, right. it's still going on. You know, um, the uh, 
one of your characters, one of your characters, one of one of the people in your book, uh, Parsons was her name, and she was a a star on um, Family Matters. Uh, they mentioned that you know Urkel was a a quote breakout character unquote, and she said something which I found really profound was that you hear about African American shows having breakout actors. But you never hear that about uh, white shows. Because, you know, you look at Happy Days with Fonzie. That was a breakout mm-hmm. character. But you, it's it's still, uh, and it's still even to this day, if you've got a, you know, it looks like African-American shows need a gimmick, even though they don't. Right. I do think that that was, so we're talking about Joe Marie Payton, um, who was the mom on Family Matters. And yeah, um, I was honored to interview her for the book. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was how, you know, Family Matters on its own was sort of this great Black family sitcom. Again, it was about a working class family. So not impoverished, but not, you know, living large like the Jeffersons or, um, you know, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I think on its own, it sort of functioned as as a lovely family sitcom. And that's what the intention was in the beginning. Um, and then you had an actor, Jaleel White, who was tapped to play, I think, you know, maybe an episode or an arc as the annoying neighbor. And it took off. And the show, you know, he sort of consumed the show. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about that sort of since, you know, Family Matters went off the air because it's a show that means a great deal to a lot of people. Yeah. Um but I think that, you know, uh, Joe Marie Payton's point was that there was a lot more to that show than Urkel. Um, and you may not have seen that, you know, reading uh, press at the time about the show or or just, you know, the way that the network sort of promoted Urkel. You mentioned also in the book, the two networks that came out um, uh, more recently, uh, UPN and the WB. Those two networks gave an opportunity to black TV artists, black writers, that they that they didn't have before. Right, there were a lot of theories on those two networks um, that were, you know, about they were black, like entirely black cast. Um, They're often created by black creators, and. So, yeah, I mean, there was a, a period in the sort of mid to late 90s, early 2000s, when there were several shows um, that reflected, you know, authentic Black experiences. Um, I think one of the the problems at that time was that they were on sort of these two networks. And it, so it was like these stories live here and mm-hmm. they can't be anywhere else. <laughs> um, yeah. See, that's... and. So you, so you can, are you saying that maybe that in it, in it, I get the words out, Jimbo, come on, <laughs> inadvertently pigeonholed black TV or actors and writers into those two networks unintentionally. Right. Yeah. I can see how that happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, one of the people I thought who was before his time, you mentioned him earlier was, was Richard Pryor. Um, uh, this guy 
he was he was comedy personified in my book um and he can his own show had his own show which lasted about what four episodes i believe before the network said we can't do this where <laughs> he's scaring us you know and that's something which only would happen with an african american um now nowadays in the 60s nowadays i believe he would be a hit on tv no for along the lines of um of uh, martin and dave chappelle you know those those type of actors would you say that's accurate I do think that's accurate. And I think, I mean, I don't think we get a Chappelle or a Martin Lawrence um, or a Deaf Comedy Jam, which is another one of the shows that I talk about in the book. I don't think you get there without Richard Pryor. Um, I think you have, there's sort of this through line from, you know, Richard Pryor to Eddie Murphy to um, Deaf Comedy Jam and Chappelle and Martin and all of these comedians who were really inspired by Richard Pryor and his sort of in-your-face comedy, brash. Um, and he wasn't always that type of comedian. It was actually on Flip Wilson's show and working with Flip Wilson um, and, and, of course, his longtime writing partner, Paul Mooney, that yeah. um, he sort of became Richard Pryor as we know him now, but absolutely. Yeah, Paul Mooney, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I first learned of Paul Mooney, I believe it was on Dave Chappelle's show, where he was he was actually on camera. And that's a shame, it's a shame on me for saying that, but I had, at that point in the time, I did not know that he was the writer behind the, uh, Richard Pryor. And, right, and yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 that's okay. Go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to say, you know, um, Chappelle actually wrote the foreword to Paul Mooney's memoir. And one of the things that he talked about in that book was that, you know, Richard Pryor had really inspired him. He saw um, his comedy as a, as a kid and thought like, I want to do that. Um, and he knew that you know, Paul M Mooney had been a writer for Richard Pryor. And so he sort of idolized him too. And so the fact that Paul Mooney is on Chappelle, the Chappelle show, um, and is the way that, like myself, even that was, um, one of, one of my introductions to Paul Mooney. I think I also saw him in Bamboozled. Um, but I do think that there is an audience that, maybe didn't know a lot about Paul Mooney or didn't even know who he was and discovered him through Chappelle's show. See that I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone in that because I, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> the, uh, well, let me ask you, um, does, does I want to, this is a loaded question I'm going to ask. Okay. Um, yeah. does, how, let me put this the right way. I'm thinking about the Oscars the Chris Rock, Will Smith incident. Uh -huh. And this was, this was the first Oscars, which, which they actually, Academy actually gave African-Americans the chance to produce it and, and be a, an important part of it, not just window dressing. And does something like that hurt the cause or help? I mean, does it help the cause or does it hurt the cause? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those unfortunate things where, and we see this in the book, you know, if there are series that have a Black creator, an all-Black cast, and they get some criticism, it tends to be outsized criticism. It tends to be like, well, we're not going to have any Black shows on this network for, you know, a period of five years because this wasn't a success or it wasn't, you know, promoted uh, like we wanted it to be a success, right. for example. Um, and so I think similarly, when you have, you know, uh, Will Packer was the producer that year of the Oscars. And it was unique because although he wasn't the first black producer of the Oscar ceremony, he, his team was the first all black team um, to produce that ceremony. And um, they did some really cool things. You know, hmm. they had a black caterer Um maybe for the first time in Oscars history, like the, the caterer was black and um, they also had students from HBCUs, um, historically black universities and colleges um, present some of the awards. And so, um, and I do think that Will Packer said um, in essence in what, in one of his interviews that, you know, his heart kind of sank when that moment happened, when Will Smith, smacked Chris Rock um, because he knew what it meant. He knew that, you know, this, that, that gig, so to speak of being Oscars producer, it's a little bigger than you. If you're one of, you know, one of one or one of few uh, black people that have been tapped to do that at the same time, I think, you know, talking about it, we can see how unfair that is that, you know, the producer who, you know, did it was helming the ceremony, but certainly had nothing to do with that decision and that moment. Um, it's so unfair to sort of hold that up as, you know, well, like this is what happens, you know? Um, but it, and I but, think, yeah. yeah. But yeah. And that's, and the reason I ask is because it, after, after I saw that, I, I had the same reaction when I saw it happening. My, my heart just sank because I was, I was thinking this is such a great night not just not just for the academy but for but for african americans all over the all over the the spectrum i was like no please don't do that you know right. um and i think you're right i think that people will look for an excuse not to have african americans back and they'll use that as an example which is totally unfair but i've seen it happen before i'm at my age, 63, I've seen that happen in other items. And it's unfair. It shouldn't happen. But, you know, maybe I'm a skeptic. Maybe maybe it's changing. Has it changed enough to where... To where the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, we can kind of tell that these things happen in cycles, you know, Um, I think what is different now is that in the era of both streaming and social media, um, viewers are able to hold both creators and networks. And I think the industry at large accountable in a way that maybe they couldn't do, um, you know, certainly 20, 30 years ago, Um, because then they were writing fan mail, you know, they were writing mail to the network and they were trying to save their show and they were sending, you know, snail mail letters about how important any given show was to them. Um, But now it's, it's all public. You know, if you, if you go on 
Twitter or X um, and you, you know, write about how much a certain show means to you and enough people do it, you know, it's out there. Um, the network can't really spin it or ignore it. Um, so I think that it, things have changed and, and in many respects, it's because uh, there is more accountability for the industry. I think a lot of it also, I mean, it's, there's been a lot of change and a lot of accountability. Um, I would say that X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, has also exposed America for still having a lot of races in their population. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I'm trying not to get political here, but you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I see things, I see things that people say, and I'm just, I just wonder if we've made as much progress as we think we've made. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that is something that a lot of the shows in, in this book um, have explored. And I think that Black creators are really adept at exploring sort of where we are and how much progress has or has not been made. Well, the author's name is Bethany Butler, and the book is Black TV, 50 Years of Groundbreaking Television from, from Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond. It comes out December 5th. You can go on Amazon.com. Barnes and Noble, or go into your local bookstore and brick and mortar store and have them order it for you. Bethany, I really appreciate you taking time tonight to be on Lights Camera Author. Thank you so much for having me.